and welcome to The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman, here with a very special episode. Um, so I'd like to introduce all the listeners out there uh, to Jess. Hello. <laughs> uh, Jess is a lawyer at a hospital, and she's going to be answering a bunch of questions that were submitted about the about American health law and the American health care system. Unfortunately, due to technical issues, Sarah can't join us today. So it's just going to be the two of us. <laughs> so Jess, um, the first question is, what does a lawyer at a hospital do? And why do hospitals in the United States need lawyers? <laughs> so that's a fun question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it kind of, what we do kind of depends on the hospital because obviously like different hospitals have different size teams. Some rely more on outside counsel than others. Um, I would say, mo- I think most hospitals, I, I really can only speak for, um, like I, I work at a hospital in New York. Um, and I don't know what systems in other States are like, but I, I think they're often similar. Um, I mostly do a lot of boring work. I review a lot of contracts, but I, I work for a hospital where that means that like at the end of every project, I get to know that a lot of uninsured and underinsured people were able to get healthcare and it makes me feel good that I'm contributing to that. Um, I, I am sure that there are larger, you know, systems or whatever, where it's a little bit more, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I feel really good about what I do, but what I do is a little boring. And honestly, that is, um, I think, something that's true for a lot of lawyers, right? That, like, sometimes the most boring jobs are the most super important ones, right? Like, it sounds like it should be something really interesting and fascinating. And at the end of the day, it's like, no, 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 bu- bu- bureaucrats are important. So <laughs> I have to say that the first, uh, so, like, for those of you who, who don't know about law school, like, the job you have uh, in the summer after your first year of law school tends to be pretty important. Um, so I worked at the St. Louis Drug Court um, in my first summer after law school. And literally the first couple weeks of my job were just reviewing all the contracts for the year. Yeah, And that is insanely important. Um, why are contracts so important to a variety of institutions? Why is that such a core part of a lot of in-house jobs? Um, well, because that's what allows the operation to keep functioning. I mean, you cannot do anything unless you have an agreement in place that allows you to do it and protects all of the parties involved. And so if you let one lapse or there's not one in place, then everything just sort of grinds. It might not grind to a halt if you, usually there is some mechanism to get what you need in place very quickly if you really need it. Or for instance, if you had like an older agreement, you can be like, you know what, let's just agree to extend this for two months while we keep negotiating. So it's not like you necessarily run into like a rock wall that you just can't get past, but it it is really just important for the, um, especially for hospitals with a little bit less cash flow, maybe like Mm -hmm. it it can be very important to keep things uh, going smoothly so that you don't, um, so that you don't hit those walls, right? Um, so yeah, that's that's important. But yeah, also I I also had a similar experience. I worked for a health department um, because I did not really know the trajectory I was going to be on yet. So my first summer, I worked for a, a county health department, and I mostly just researched a lot of things and was like, it was a real eye opener for me of like how things actually work and how much it's really just like a, a bunch of guys sitting around in a room being like, Hey, I kind of want to do it this way. And then some other person being like, yeah, that sounds good. And that's like, 
(laughs) And then they're like, you go on Westlaw and make sure that this isn't like a huge constitutional Mm -hmm. violation for us to do it this way. (laughs) Yeah. And for the listeners who aren't, who who aren't familiar with Westlaw, it's a legal research tool. Um, And there's Westlaw, there's LexisNexis. There is theoretically Bloomberg law, but who uses Bloomberg law? Um, You know, the new one that the Bar Association, the New York State Bar Association has this new, I want to say it's called Fast, Fast. Something. Yeah. I th- Honestly, I was pretty impressed with it yeah. the first time I used it. It was way better than I thought it would be for a relatively <laughs> new system. Yeah, they're fun so. because like you get a lot of like, you know, there's a thing in law school where you get a lot of uh, like swag from Lexus and from Westlaw because they're trying to get you to get used to using their research tools. So then when you're a practicing attorney, you will pay their ridiculous uh, uh, fees to continue using their service. Anyway, so we all get used to that. Um, yeah. You, so this is for all of you people who try to be like armchair lawyers uh, and Google stuff. Um, Google does not is not where actual lawyers go for this information. Um, you go to specialized databases. If you already know the case that you're looking for, yeah. you can almost always yeah. find it on Google. So it is useful in that sense. But if you want to know like, hey, what are the cases that then relied on this yeah. or maybe like tweaked this or changed it or got a court to say, no, 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 we don't like this. We're going to like change it this way or that way. That is where a legal research, uh, like a like a platform for legal research comes in handy because they have um, these systems of site checking essentially where it okay. says, okay, here are all the cases that were linked to this one since yeah. it came out. And that that's really where it, it kind of like leaps off from where Google can help you. So yeah, it is super, super helpful. Um, And because of the way that precedent works, right, everything is sort of like interpolated. So you need to see the line of cases, right? And this is just for those who are interested in legal research, law school, um, this is just a major part, uh, a major factor in any lawyer's toolbox, being really, really good at doing your research um, so that you don't wind up blindsided by a case or an issue that you didn't anticipate because you didn't research it right. <laughs> and they're all proprietary. So when you go to law school, they're all fighting for you to fall in love with them. So while while you're there, you will. Um, I, I had a, a a classmate who called himself a freegan because the entire three years he tried never to pay for anything he ate. He would just go to all the student events yeah. and like fully half of them were hosted by either Lexus or Westlaw because the two of them compete and, yeah. and they want you to like their product better. Oh, yeah. They're all free while you're in law school. It's, it's you know, what is the first one's free? Like they're yeah. giving it all yeah. to you while you're there. <laughs> and then the whole time they're like, oh, would you like some pizza? Come and we'll teach you how to, how to search for administrative law cases. Yeah. You know, we'll give you like special tools so that you know how to use it properly. And they just give out pizza or salad or whatever it is. So I want to say this guy managed to, uh, he claims that he like basically paid for no food the entire time we were in law school. That's why he calls himself a freegan. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. There has to be some clever pun on Westlaw or Lexus, but I can't, it's not coming to mind that 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 goes with that. It's not coming to mind at the moment. But um, famously, uh, of the, the groups that sponsor events on campus, you know, we've mentioned on the podcast, uh, the Federalist Society multiple times, they get sponsored by Chick-fil-A. Do they really? Yeah, like every uh, event that the Confederalist Society does gets catered by Chick-fil-A. Um, so that's when you're trying to organize a law school event, you have to ask yourself, is the food going to, if you're uh, lined up at the same time as a Federalist Society event, is this superior food to Chick-fil-A? <laughs> and sometimes the answer is no. 
so this is an aside, but like when, uh, for the nonprofit, when I was traveling around doing a lot of, um, programming, I kept a little power spreadsheet of the different food and then how much was left over <laughs> at the end of each one. And the, by far the most common, can you guess the most common food that, that plate, that student associations provided? I mean, I would have to guess pizza because yeah. it's so easy to provide for a large number of people exactly. and there's always local pizza places and it seems like it would be the best bang for your buck money-wise, like affordability-wise. In terms of being left over, it was very middling. So there was, it was mid-tier. Okay. The highest tier was at, um, was the uh, uh, um, ACS in at George Mason, which is not a place known for its uh, liberal politics. They were very organized because the small number of liberal uh, law students at George Mason are very well organized. They got barbecue. <laughs> okay. And that was all gone, including the sides oh, in wow. under 40 minutes. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. So top, barbecue, top tier. I took a class in my second year. I took a medical malpractice class, which turned out to be one of my favorite classes that I took the whole time I was in law school. Because we took it with this guy who's in private practice. He was like, on, I think he was on the board of trustees. He came back and taught it. He is hands down one of the best professors I had. He was so much fun. But he came in. It's only a two credit class. And he came in the first day. And he was like, listen, I know we're, I'm only allowed to keep you here two hours once a week because it's only a two credit class. He's like, here's the deal. I want to talk longer. I want you to stay longer. You are still only going to get two credits for this class, but if you're willing to stay for about three to three and a half hours and let me teach it the way I want to teach it, I will buy you dinner every night that we have class. That's this amazing. Is an evening class. And he was like, and I'll buy you whatever you want. So we basically ended up eating sushi yeah. on Monday nights for the entire semester on his dime. And this is like, awesome. he, I mean, he's in private practice. Like I imagine yeah. it wasn't that big of a hardship. For it would crack me up. He's probably billing his, uh, he's probably expensing it. It was a small class. This yeah. wasn't like a huge lecture class. This was like eight people in a, in a practicum kind of a setting. Oh, okay. yeah. So it was so a little, yeah. yeah, but he, he taught us the entire <laughs> semester. And the only rule was that we were never allowed to complain about how late we got out because that was the exchange. Yeah. He would buy us whatever we wanted for dinner, but then we would sit there and participate. And honestly, we all had a blast. So yeah. it wasn't, yeah. So sounds like you guys had a good contract. Yes, that was a good. Yeah, that you was guys me. had a good contract. Yes, there was consideration. There was, <laughs> there was offer, <laughs> acceptance, consideration. We yes. have the three elements that we need uh, for a, a binding contract. But there was a question um, uh, that came up from multiple uh, uh, listeners, which was, "How did you decide to do healthcare law? How did you Ugh. decide that you wanted to work in this field?" So I don't know how most people decide and get into health law, which is interesting because I, I have family members who are also in health law yeah. <laughs> and they got there in different ways than I did. Um, but for me, I kind of got there on a, a very like roundabout path that only makes sense when you look at it all together, which is I, so I went back to school when I was 29 or so, mm -hmm. um, I went back to college and I wanted to be a funeral director. It was a two-year degree. Um, it was something I'd always been interested in. My parents had talked me out of it, believe it or not. Like, Interesting. I wanted to do it okay. after high school. And my parents were like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, and I think they were right because I don't think I had the level of maturity that you need for it. But when I went back as an older You're you know, a full adult. student, yeah. I was, yeah, I'd been working for like a decade. I knew yeah. what, like I knew how to interact with adults without being weird. Like I could... Yeah. I don't know that an 18 year old can really like fully comfort and take care of somebody in that situation, but 
I was a little more prepared for it. So can a 18 year old comfort and care for anyone in any situation? I probably some, but not me. Yeah, I don't like rare, I wasn't equipped rare. for it. So, yeah. <laughs> but when I when I went back, I I did very well with the coursework. Um, I finished that degree, but by the time I finished that degree, I had sort of realized, oh, that's right. I love school. I'm good at being in school. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to keep going. So I never actually practiced as a funeral director, really. I didn't even finish the residency. I'm about halfway through. I could still go back and finish oh. it, but it wasn't important yeah. um, because it proved itself to be a stepping stone. So I went back, I then went to college and one of the things that older students returning to college can tell you is that the teachers tend to be a little bit more accommodating of requests as long as they see that like, well, this is somebody who's here because they want to be here. They're dedicated. They're committed. So they're asking for this little, you know, exception to take an extra class or to do this or to do that. They're probably going to let you because you're, you're clearly there with a little bit more motivation. And you know how to ask. Right. Exactly. You're respectful. You're exactly. Yeah. So not like yo teach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo teach, give me this thing. So so I basically got permission to take a number of master's classes in a their that the school that I attended has a master of public health program and they let me start taking classes in that as an undergrad and using them towards like as credit toward my undergrad degree so I could use them like for both. So basically yeah. shortening but by the time I was getting ready to graduate my you know, the, the director of that program had a couple of conversations with me where she basically was trying to help me figure out what I wanted to do with my degree. Mm. Cause public health, you can do a lot of things in public. Very health. Very flexible. And everything I said, she would kind of scratch her head and think about it for a minute. It's like, you know, you really need a law degree for that. And eventually I was like, well, then I guess I'll just go get one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so which, and it was touch and go because the first couple of times I took a practice LSAT, um, I, I didn't do very well. Many people don't if they've never heard of it or tried to take one before. And it is not a test that tests like an, any sort of innate thing. It it's not intuitive. It tests skill yes. that you can learn. Yes, it does. And that is one of the reasons why there is such a disparity between um, people who come from like wealthier sections of society because they come from families maybe where they can afford like a Princeton review course or a Kaplan course or whatever to, to study for the LSAT. Yeah. So back in my previous life, they could afford to hire me, that, that version of me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was very good at it. Yeah. yeah. So they, and I, I shouldn't have advertised any of the companies in particular, but there are nope. a lot of companies that offer practice for these tests. All I can tell you is they offer basically the same material. The thing that really matters is the quality of your instructor. The material is all the same. These things have been solved. It's just about how good your teacher is. And just for those of you who are thinking about law school, you want an experienced instructor. Most people in test prep teach it less than nine months, which you can't master anything yeah. in, in nine months. So like, for example, by the time I was on my third year, I was a master instructor because like I had almost more, I had more experience than almost everyone. Yeah. Um, and then by the time I left, I, after seven years, like virtually like no one else had that much teaching experience. So I just want to note that like, be very careful. Don't just look at the company name, make sure that you're going for an instructor who has a good amount of experience in the field. Um, Cause it really does, as you said, as you said, these are very discrete specific skill sets um, that are not intuitive to anyone. Yeah. Uh, and a good instructor will have seen all of the different uh, problems that students have. I think there 
are rare people who probably take to it very naturally. There are probably people who, um, the logic games in particular were the thing that defeated me. And I think there yeah. are probably people who that comes few and far between. Few and far I'm between. sure there are some people who are like, oh no, I just get this. So with the logic games, it's the place where the students do the worst at first, <laughs> but then see the largest score increases. Yeah. And it was my specialty by the time I ended up, I, by the time I was done with desk prep. And I have to tell you, the first time I looked at a logic game section, I threw my book across the room because I was so frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end, I could like, do them in my sleep. So I can still remember some of the ones yeah. that I that I had to focus on and try over and over. Like dinosaurs was one. I don't remember. The <laughs> I just remember there was one about dinosaurs. There was one about CDs, uh-huh. like organizing CDs. Oh, was that in a the, row? Yeah. And, like, mm-hmm. The uh, the one that I ended up getting on my test was about like people sitting at a table and like like Sarah is three seats to the left of John and John is across from Miriam and there are four blank seats and like (laughs) yeah and like that was one thing my students would always come in terrified of logic games and they'd walk out and it was their favorite section yeah because it was the one they knew they could just destroy that was me because I loved puzzles to begin with I just didn't know how to do this type of puzzle so once I figured it out it was like well now I can I I nailed that section on the on the LSAT when I finally so I I want to talk a little bit about that you know you said that you there are some you know there are some lawyers in your family but clearly you walked into it not having sort of like grown up with the LSAT like in the water no. And in fact, so my, my mother passed away, uh, gosh, like 15 years ago now. Um, and she would probably have laughed her ass off if you told her back then that I was eventually going to be a lawyer because mm-hmm. I was like the artsy one in our family. Uh-huh. And like, I just don't think she ever saw that coming, which is funny because she was artsy and then became a lawyer. So, well, I used to tell my parents, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm going to become a lawyer or a teacher. And now I fucking teach law. So. <laughs> kill me (laughs) nice work if you can get it yeah it is true um but yeah so so i ended up getting uh i i went to somebody in my college's admissions department and i was like can you help me like figure out how to take one of these courses and she knew somebody at one of the companies and got me a scholarship i couldn't take the in-person class they wouldn't cover that but the scholarship that they gave me covered their online version of everything. So I got the recorded uh, mm-hmm. lessons and I just had, I, you know, it's not as good as in person, but I, I could watch it twice. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I just watched them over and over until I got better and better. It's not that they're not as good. They're just less efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because you can't speak to them. You yeah. can't raise your hand and say, hi, can you, yeah. I didn't understand <laughs> that thing. Can you say it again or, yeah. or explain it differently? So it just takes a little longer, but it was, that was really all it took. And I really, i I am a firm believer that all of those things should be available to everybody. Agreed. Um, I think they do a lot. There is a lot more, at least where we live mm-hmm. in this part of, you know, our neck of the woods where they really try to reach out more to, uh, to communities that you don't see producing a lot of lawyers Yeah. and, uh, and, and try to offer more, more of these things like scholarships and services yeah. to help people. My law school in particular has uh, a whole program where, whatever you get, whatever you get on your test, the first time you take it, it could be, I think it, I think the lowest score you can get is like a 125. 120. 120. Lowest, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like a weird number range. It's 120 to 180, which so yeah. intuitive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I got to know who came up with it, but he deserves a spot yeah. in hell next to the guy who invented high heels. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But so, so their deal is like, if you sign up for this program where they, they teach you some 
I think it's a combination of like, they help you with LSAT prep, but then they also give you some basic entry-level skills to help you succeed in law school. So like some writing skills, some reasoning skills, some analytical skills. And you go in every so often for, it's like a classroom setting that they teach at the law school. And then you retake the test. And I don't know exactly what the number is, but it it really doesn't matter what your number is. Ultimately, what matters is how many points you go up. And I I think if you go up a certain number of points, which is not an outrageous amount, you essentially are, are, are like in, mm, you, you will be admitted to the law school. And in my year, one of the people who came in that way ended up, I think being our valedictorian, Wow, which is weird. Cause we don't really rank people, but I guess at the end they figure out who, they, they, yeah, they have to figure out <laughs> one person. And, yeah. and I, I've seen several classes yeah. where it was, I, I think it's called the, the pipeline is what they call it. And okay. they, it was a pipeline student who ended up graduating at the top of their class. A lot of them graduated at yeah. the top of their class because Law school is not about any innate thing, right? It's, d- do you study? Do you care? Do you, like caring about what you're learning is a huge part yeah. of what you're doing in law school. And the law schools that just like torture people, um, I-, I personally don't find that an effective way of learning. And I think now a lot of schools are branching out and trying to come up with other ways to do it because it's becoming very obvious that this is just a system that serves a very set <laughs> section of society and it's not helpful to many people. So Yeah, and it wasn't actually, it, did, it wasn't a good way of teaching law. Let's right. just be straightforward that like, you know, pedagogy, like it's a science. There are very clear ways that work and ways that don't. And the sort of law school confrontational cold call system is only good for a very select group of students. I personally, I gotta say, I personally like the Socratic method parts of it. I don't like the way that it has been turned into like a a hazing exercise at law schools. I think the Socratic method itself has a lot of benefits because you get people to, like I've been in plenty of college classes where you just couldn't get anyone to talk, right? Like nobody wants to raise their hand. Nobody wants to participate. Whereas in the when you're using the Socratic method, people get drawn into it and they, they, it becomes a conversation in a way that you don't see in other uh, pedagogies. So I like that. But once you turn it to like, there are, there are professors at law schools who, if you're in the hot seat, they just don't let it go. And if you don't know the answer, I think most professors, if you don't know the answer after a while, they're like, all right, I'm going to move on counselor and like go to the next person. But some professors will just stick with you and humiliate you Thankfully, we did not have that at my school. That was basically like that. I never, obviously they're not going to tell us if a teacher gets in trouble, like they're not going to like broadcast it, but you got the impression that the teachers understood that this is not an acceptable way of doing things here. Yeah. So I didn't see a lot of it where I was. And also like fear is not a good place if you're trying to get people to learn Uh, because like literally fight or flight, you're not. You're, you can't take in new information. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a terrible way to learn. And if everyone's terrified at all times, I agree that like I I work through the Socratic method. It's the way that I teach, but it's a conversation. Yeah, It's not an interrogation. Well, that, and everybody told me before I started, I had so many people tell me like, oh, you're going to watch the paper chase before you go. Oh God, you So I did. It's such a, it's, that movie's so outdated now. I know. It's they really need so to stop telling outdated. people to watch it. But when you, the first scene of that, of that movie is this guy entering his first contracts class because yeah. contracts is notoriously tough. Um, but this guy, this guy comes into contracts class. He ends up in the hot seat. He hasn't done the reading because he didn't realize that they had homework for the first class. Yeah. So this guy just lays into him and the scene ends 
if I recall correctly, with him running into a men's room and vomiting because he's like, he, he's so like churned up by this experience of being essentially just humi- like yep. publicly humiliated is, is what it comes down to. And thank goodness I showed up for like my first week and before, during orientation, before you even started our first classes, they made it clear that that was not going to happen to us, yeah. except like, like if it did, it would be very unusual. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think this is really I thank you so much for sharing your experience with this, because I think it's really important, particularly for uh, first generation students um, in, in the law. There's a lot that you don't there are a lot of unknown unknowns. Yeah. Um, and it can be very scary and intimidating, which is something I think prevents a lot of people from thinking that they belong in the law uh, in the first place. And I think it's really important to hear stories of people who have made it successfully and have had good careers in the law and overcome these obstacles. They're not insurmountable. There are resources out there, but as you said, like you have to make use of them. Mm-hmm. You have to ask for help. Like I had a good friend of mine who she's just like, everyone's talking about briefing cases. I don't know how to, how to brief a case. Yeah. And I'm just like, Hey, let, let's brief a case together because you know, my dad was a lawyer. And so I, I never knew- briefed a case. Exactly. I looked them up online. Yeah. There was no, it did not. I, I tried it a couple of times. I learned how to do it and I did not find it at all helpful exactly. to me. I found it a waste of time that I could have just been studying someone else's brief of a case. Yep. And from then on, I went on, there's like a dozen loss. Uh, there are so many sites. You can get them on. And some people find it useful. Personally, I did. But it's not necessary. People learn different ways. On the other hand, I wrote roadmaps for my exams, like 12, 13 page roadmaps to memorize so that I wouldn't have to think about rules as I type them out. And most people thought I was nuts for doing that. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, you brief cases and it doesn't work for me. I Ex- roadmap exams and it doesn't work for you. Yeah. Whatever. That's hilarious because <laughs> like uh, I do, I create roadmaps as well. And I still do it. It was like a choose your own adventure. I would have, I would even have little arrows that was like, was the did the fact pattern tell you this? Okay, go to page three. <laughs> yeah, no, but that, that's a really good point because what do you think preparing for a trial, preparing a case is? It's about organizing all of this information yeah. in a way that's legible to you, so then you can make it legible to the jury or whoever you're dealing with. And I I will say that what you what you do as you participate, if it's if the pedagogy and all of the study methods work well for you, it really will. It should prepare you for how you're going to practice and tell you if it's going to be something that you enjoy and that you're good at. And I will say that my first semester, there was a kid in our class. I don't even remember his name at this point, but there there was a guy in our class and he was fine. He wasn't doing badly. He he was doing fine. He I think we have midterms at my law school, which is very unusual. That's very unusual. It's usually just your final. They're only worth 10 or 15 percent. But the mm. idea was to give you like a, a benchmark to say like, hey, mm. if you were to take a final right now based on this much material, how would you do? Mm-hmm. And and so I found it useful. Um, he did OK on his as far as I recall. He I think he stayed to the end of the semester and took the exams. But at the end of that semester, he was like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to be happy being a lawyer. Like I have gotten an idea of what I'm going to be doing when I finish here. And it's really hard. And I'm not saying I'm quitting because it's hard, but I don't think it is worth how hard it is for me in my life. And I was, I had so much respect for that kid because that is a big thing to, Mm -hmm. to be in law school and quit. Yeah. There is some like there's a whole like bunch of stuff that comes along with that life choice oh, that yeah. your friends and family are you're, are going to make you feel a certain way having to tell them yeah. whether they judge you or not you're going to f- have feelings about having to tell people that you quit and I just had so much respect for this kid being like no I sat here I I 
got a real good idea of what my life's going to be. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that picture I saw. And I'm mm-hmm. happy that you all like it, but it's just not for me, man. Right. I think it's the rare person who has that level of self-awareness, Yeah. <laughs> but God, that's helpful. Like one of my favorite comedians, Dimitri Martin started law school and then realized that what he really wanted to do was comedy. And at, on his first Netflix special, he's up there. He's just like, uh, he's doing his thing and he brings his mom on stage. He's like, this is my mom. Everybody cheers for him. He's like, um, mom, I don't think I'm going back to law school. <laughs> that's one way to do it. Yeah. That's one, that, that's one way to do it. But like, Hey, you have a Netflix special now you're doing all right. Uh, but like I have people I went to law school with who are now in their thirties and they're having a crisis because they hate what they do. Yeah. And one thing, you know, uh, Jess and I are friends and we, we've talked about the law outside of this podcast. But one thing I've noticed is that you really enjoy the work that you do. I love the work that I do. Yeah. And I love the law and I have a real passion for the law. And in fact, at my last job, one of the things that my boss would tell me every time I had a performance, re- you know, they always say like they try to pair like a, a good thing with like a constructive criticism. The first one he would always throw out is like, your passion for the law is like so obvious. And there are so few people who have, you know, been practicing for more than a year who still care about it. And and he's like, but you dig your teeth into some of these cases. Like, like you just want to be like a one woman. And I was like, yeah, that isn't that how it should be for every case. Like, so I, I personally think that part of the reason for that is that I came to law a little later, right? Like mm-hmm. I, this was a second career. I had a whole career in theater for 10 years. I ran theaters and I did like all this other stuff. And then I went back to school and eventually that led me to this. But I personally think that there is a huge advantage to not going to law school right after college. Mm-hmm. When you see that, what's the word for K, K-, K- to JD? K to JD. K- JD is what they yeah. say. Where like you, you never take a break. And I also think, in my opinion, you hear a lot of people talk about how insanely difficult law school is it is hard don't get me wrong it's a lot of work but I will say that I was like shocked because I didn't I had heard so much about it and I didn't think it was nearly as hard as people thought now granted I had been a stay-at-home mom for a couple years um I had been working like really early morning shifts uh and then coming home staying home with my son and then going to school in the evening so by the time I started law school it was the first time in several years that I only had one thing to do all day. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, all I have to do is be in this one place and I get to have adult conversations. Yeah. Like I'm not talking, I love being at home with my son, but it, it's a lot right it's... after a few years, just talking to a three-year-old all day. Yeah. So for me, it was like, well, not only that, but I have had a job for like over a decade since, you know, and this is a I, job and this is, and this is basically like a yeah. full-time job. Um, except I, I don't know. I guess I think the problem is that some people go to it right from college and college is not o- overwhelmingly uh, some people like if you're if you were an engineering student or something. Yeah, but you, lot, you have my respect. Very few law <laughs> students did anything like that. Right. So like unless you had one of those like insanely yeah. difficult majors where you're just working at like 18 credits every semester yeah. around the clock. I think most people go from a college setting, which is like a relatively lax environment to law school, and they've never had any work experience in between. And they've never had to deal with the petty unfairness of working for people you don't like, which is like a huge skill to learn. Right. 
Um, and, and I think that's part of why they think that it's so difficult and so much work is that it is a little less forgiving, right? Your it professor is, is going to be like, no, you need to understand this in order to practice law. Yeah. And this is the only week I have to teach it to you. So you yeah. better come in having read it. So I, I think it's not as hard as some people think. And it's a little easier for people who take a break. On the other hand, I am not trying to diminish how difficult no, I it am, is. I so. am being straightforward. <laughs> that was my experience as well. That like, I... There was a good quote from LeBron James who was asked once, you know, he lost an NBA finals and, uh, and he's just like, look, we lost. It's over. No one died. Uh, I'll see you again next year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I come at it from like, I have, as you said, like I, I went in my thirties and like my dad, like you, like this is actually a larger trend non-traditional students are making a larger and larger part of law school classes because hint, they make better lawyers. Um, having lived a little bit does help you, mm-hmm. um, especially understand what your clients' needs or problems uh, might be. Like I had buried a parent and a grandparent. Like I had had a, my remaining parent have cancer and care for her. Like I had dealt with my dad's death and then had to go to work. You know, mm-hmm. and I can't cry in front of my students, but instead I have to be cheerful and motivating and then like deal with my emotions in the bathroom. You know, like yeah. when there are people there who like didn't do the reading for three months and then are freaking out at the exam, I had very little patience for that. And as I told you once, I took finals from a hospital. Like, you know, like I understood that, you know, shit happens. You have to move forward. You do the best that you can and you don't complain and you, you just do the best that you can and you, it won't be perfect or as good as you want it to be, but it'll be good enough. Yeah. Right. Because you did the work leading up to get to that moment. And so like anybody who thinks like those horror stories, you treat it like a job, right? You treat it like a job and there's a lot of pressure in law school to drink and party. Just don't do it. Yeah. That was the biggest thing. I just didn't get wasted. So I was always ready to work the next morning. Well, and we were also earlier, we were talking about um, a rule that's in place. That's kind of like a double-edged sword where at least in New York, I'm not sure if it's this, is it a national rule or is it just a New York state bar rule that you're not allowed to work more than 20 hours a week? I think that varies. I think it varies state to state. Okay. Yeah. Well here you're, I think the most you can work at any job, including a job at your law school. So like I was a TA and an RA and I was only allowed to, I know, I don't think I ever maxed out on research hours, Mm -hmm. but I was not allowed to do more than 20 per week. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is they want to level the playing field. Yeah. Uh, so that like, you know, you don't have a bunch of students who are like, well, I have to work 40 hours a week. So I, I can't compete with this kid who doesn't have to work and gets an A, but as we said, it levels the playing field from the perspective of the person who doesn't need to work. So it's, I had this, I had this actually come up because I was hired as a research assistant for two professors and I wanted to take courses and I could handle this work, but I actually had to wind up taking, not get paid for one of them instead, get credit that I didn't need for it because I couldn't violate the rule. Yeah. I would have exceeded the number of work hours. And so instead, like, I will not, we made an arrangement. So I wound up getting paid during at another period when I wasn't doing it, but it was like, it was ridiculous, you know, but um, they're supposedly there to protect you. I think they're actually ABA rules. I think they're accreditation rules, but I think that some schools are more or less because they can restrict it further than that. But I don't think they can go be be more lax 
Um, but, you know, I, I think that I think it's really important and I'm happy that we're going to be able to have you for a follow-up because I think, <laughs> I think what's useful. So a lot of our listeners are either in the law or interested in going into the law. Oh, you or, could do a whole episode on like, what should I know before law school? Yeah. But yeah. Okay. And I have a lot of experience <laughs> and I, I've been thinking this is a project for another day, but I'm, I have been working on an open source curriculum for the LSAT. So I think democratizing access to test prep, I think is important. Um, but when, so, but you're at the point, let's say, you know, for people who are in law school and they're making that decision of like, what kind of law to to go into is like, how did you make that decision? What, um, what did you consider? And then ultimately, as you were sort of navigating the early parts of your career, how did you make those decisions, balance the rest of your life to wind up where you are now, which is pretty successful. I mean, this is a good job. And I'm here early. Yeah. I'm here ahead of schedule. Yeah. And I, I want to note here that like anybody who's in the law, like being in-house somewhere is unusual to be early in career. Usually it's much more experienced attorneys who wind up in-house and they're, pr- and they're very good gigs because you have like regular hours, stuff like that. So the lifestyle is, is, is huge. There's, you know, they're viewed as, as very relaxed and, and easygoing. So, I mean, honestly, depending, a lot of people would be like, they're so lazy they're so (laughs) no no i mean everyone i know who's in-house is like super happy with it so like (laughs) it's it's a good job and interesting you do interesting work on interesting issues um and so like so how did you wind up choosing the field and then sort of navigate your way through that early part of your career so i did not so much choose it as find my way along a path that led to it Mm. um and there were at every, you know, again, it's like a choose your own adventure, right? Like there were, there were steps at every, at every turn I could have gone right or gone left. Mm-hmm. And this was the one that felt right at the time. Uh, but when I, when I entered law school, I assumed that I would do something vaguely, I had an idea like administrative or regulatory related, like I kind of thought maybe I'll go work for the government. Like I didn't, I really didn't know. Yeah. All I knew was that I loved health and that I had some ideas of things I wanted to do. Also, I was in a master of public health program at the time, which the pandemic kind of stalled. And by the time I thought about going back and finishing, it was like, I don't think it would help my career. Yeah. So as close as I am, if I wanted, I could finish it really quickly yeah. in one semester, but I'm like, I don't care. Um, like if, if you needed to, you would, but like, you don't need to. So I, you know what? The, the knowledge that I gained yeah. is what I value from it. Go. The actual letters after yeah. my name are not so important to me anymore because I don't think that they would really benefit me at this point. Yeah. So, uh, but at the time I was in both. And when I entered law school, I would say actually right up until like my last year of law school, I did not know whether I was going to be a lawyer and my MPH would be like, you know, a bonus at the end of my name to help me in what I wanted to do and kind of guide what I did. Or if I was going to be a public health person who had a law degree helping me and probably I was leaning more towards that. Like I I think I, I was really focused on the public health when I first decided to do this. Um, and I, and I think that's what I thought I would do. Like maybe go work for a government agency, but have the the background with the legal knowledge that it would like help me in that career. But then I got there and I think I told you this story earlier today. So <laughs> our first semester, everybody had to moot. And for those of you who don't know what mooting is, it's like a fake trial or a fake uh, proceeding, fake hearing, fake something or other, where they give you a 
uh, a set of facts, usually of it, they're usually kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> they, they try. They, they try to make try. them fun. Some teachers are more creative than others, yeah. so you get better stories than others. But this one was uh, was okay, mm-hmm. and you learn the facts and everybody is assigned one side or the other. Sometimes both. Sometimes you have to argue. It's called on brief or off brief where you are like arguing both sides, but we were assigned a side. I had a partner and we're getting closer and closer to the day. And now it's the day of, we have to go in and argue before it's three of your teachers who make a panel. So it's sort of like you're before a a three panel, you know, a three judge panel at a hearing or something. And uh, the teams are waiting outside to go in and I'm looking around up and down the hall and everyone looks nervous. They all look super nervous because it's the first time most of them have ever done this. And a lot of them look like they're wearing their parents' clothes. Like, yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. That's yeah. true. Yeah, there were a lot of borrowed clothes. They were so, they're so cute. <laughs> yeah, very yeah. cute. So, so I'm waiting outside, looking up and down the hall, and I don't feel nervous. Yeah. And I'm like, all of a sudden it hits me because I, I used to work in theater for years mm-hmm. and years. I worked in theater and obviously like even just for, I went to an acting conservatory, but even for fun, I... I acted in shows, you know, at community theater level, et cetera. It was just fun. And I'm looking around and I go, oh, oh, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. This is just talking in front of people. I have done this. And I went in and I was cool as a cucumber and I nailed it. And I ended up like really doing well in that, um, in that exercise. And that I think is a really, it was important for me, not only because I did well and obviously you want to do well, but because it was the first time that I looked back at the experience that I had had leading up to going to law school and said, Hey, you know what? Going to an acting conservatory when I was like 20 years old or 22 years old, like it turns out that is not completely irrelevant to what I'm going to do for the rest of my life and running theaters for all those years and having to occasionally, like if something would go wrong, I'd have to come out and make an announcement to the audience that we would start in five minutes. Little things like that build up over time to the point where when I had to go in that room, I was the only one who didn't look like I wanted to throw up. So (laughs) So it, I, I think it's also really important yeah. to like let your life experiences inform you. And that is something that I think comes more naturally to people who come into it from a justice advocacy yeah. perspective where they're like, well, this thing happened to me and motivated me to go to law mm-hmm. school and I'm going to carry it with me in there. And and those people, I think, have a much easier time remembering to incorporate their, you know, if you want to think of it as like a past life. Yeah. So there is a... Uh, uh, there's recently um, William Dershowitz. He's uh, an author. Um, he used to teach at Yale, but he um, uh, his new book is called Excellent Sheep, and it's about the American elite. And what one thing he it is actually a comment by one of his students, and one of these kids who's just sort of followed the path throughout their whole life, and they're taught to be excellent at things, but never why. Why are they supposed to be good at any of these things? And the student's like, wait, so you're telling us that we're excellent sheep? <laughs> right? And he's like, yes, you have all these skills, but you have no idea what you want yeah, or why you want it. And this is something I found uh, in law school. There are a lot of, like the youngest member of my class couldn't drink. She was like 20 years, she was 19 when we started. Oh, wow. um, and... She, you know, wild, right? And she was just naive to the point that it was almost absurd. Like we're reading one case where, uh, uh, where a a car company uh, had basically made the calculation that it was cheaper to pay out wrongful death suits and liability suits. No, but for a malfunctioning um, uh, uh, um, starter, 
that caused the cars to catch on fire that it would be to issue a recall. They just did the math on it. Okay. And she's just like, oh, this had to be overturned on appeal. No company would ever, ever do that. And I'm just like, oh, you sweet summer child, bless your heart. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you have not read the next case, which is about a pharmaceutical company doing something yeah. way worse with way more dead people, which really upset her because both of her parents worked for a pharmaceutical company. Um, and it's things like that, right? That having an actual grounding in the real world and having worked um, and even small things like how to command a room. Yeah. You know, how to communicate with your peers at a professional event and not get wasted and make a fool of yourself. These are things you learn that are useful in the practice of law, but you, you learn through life, not, especially, not I, I think one of the key things that um, really, really handcuffs a lot of uh, younger students who are then younger attorneys, yeah. right. Is um, the idea of, sticking up for yourself in ethic ethics situations yeah. is really um you know if you are like fresh out of college and you have this job and everybody is senior to you and they're all telling you to do something and especially after law school when you have been told what the ethical rules are you even have to take an exam that tells you mm-hmm. i mean not that that exam is yeah <laughs> that's yeah. kind of a giving that's an entirely different com- that's <laughs> I mean, a listen, huge if your boss is asking you to do something that would be a gimme on the mpre yeah. then you should be able to say no yeah <laughs> mpre is, is pretty obvious mpre is the <laughs> ethics exam for lawyers that you have to take in addition to the bar exam right yeah it's very basic it is like the absolute floor <laughs> of what you should know it's basically how to not get disbarred yeah. it doesn't teach you how to practice law ethically it teaches you how to not get disbarred yeah. for breaking the rules but i, I do think mo- all, i think I think all law schools now have to. I know my school taught plenty of ethics oh, classes yeah. or ethics like we had one. You know, uh, what would you call like uh, ethics adjacent yeah. classes? We had one one class on ethics, and it wasn't. We there's no actual discussion of ethics. There was a discussion of what the rules are, but not anything about actual substantive ethics. And I think this is a larger criticism I have of law school. We talk about things like justice and fairness, yeah. but we never actually fill in what those concepts mean. Well, I went to a real social justice oriented law school, unusually so. So we yeah. had a, we had a lot of ethics built into our curriculum to begin uh, with. It was kind of a requirement. I also was fortunate enough to take a wonderful mediation clinic in my second year, mm. and my mediation clinic teacher was intensely focused on legal ethics, mm. and it. I believe that's why she was a mediator. That mm-hmm. she was like, listen, I don't think you can accomplish this. Yeah like required level of ethics in litigation, at least not the way our system works. And mm. and for her, that was one of the reasons why mediation was so important because it placed the uh, the subjects of the mediation above the attorneys who are mediating for them. And I think that was a big deal for her that, that it allowed uh, a level of ethical responsibility that you don't see in litigation, which I could debate her for now, having been a litigator, I could debate her about that for days because I think you can be a very strongly ethical litigator, but I can see her point because it is harder to do it as a litigator. You really want it. Man, if you have even the tiniest bit of like (laughs) fire in your belly, you see ways around things sometimes Uh that you're like, I could go that direction. And it's hard sometimes to be like, no, 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 that wouldn't be right. So I mean, uh, this is a huge can of worms in the law, but like, Put it this way, a lot of big firms, very successful litigation firms, 
they have like there's actually an entire uh, uh, an entire company of former is- Israeli intelligence officers, and one of their who do like <laughs> private surveillance. Yeah. Some of their biggest, most regular clients are big law firms, and so like there are a lot of things that are involved in litigation that have absolutely nothing to do with the law, but are nevertheless highly effective tactics to get yeah. people to do what you want them to do. This is a whole other can of worms. Um, but I think that's really important, at least at the base level, you should at least see what all the options are before yeah. choosing which of these avenues you want to go, because mediation, negotiation, um, litigation, all of these are specialties. All yeah. of these require different skill sets that you that you can learn. Um, and not all schools yeah. really train you in all of them. Yeah. So I will say, and this is... Man, if anybody from my law school listens to this, they're going to be so mad. They're not going to like this. I personally think that my, my law school does not produce a lot of prosecutors. I'm sure they produce some, but we don't produce a lot. We instead produce a lot of public defenders. And there's a lot of criticism of prosecutors. And I share many of those uh, criticisms. However, I'm also of the belief that if you want to if, if you want to produce more ethical minded prosecutors, that the way to do that is to train prosecutors. Mm. And I and so there that, and that's a debate. I don't think I'm the only person who. No, would say not that. at all. I think there are a lot of people who be yeah. disappointed <laughs> I don't... Uh, that I feel that way. But I do think I, I do think it's important. And I and and going back to the age thing, mm-hmm. I think it is especially difficult. It is one thing to take somebody who went to law school at 30, graduated 34, 35, right, like, yeah. you know, in their 30s or whatever put them in a new job as an assistant DA somewhere and have somebody hand them a case file, see something that was done that maybe is like Brady material that wasn't handed over or something um, to look at that and say, no, this wasn't done right. And and handed over versus somebody who is 21 years old. They never worked in the real world outside of colleges, their very first job, or maybe they've done internships, but it's their very first like quote real job. Right. And they're put in this position, they're given this material, and the person looks at them and says, this is how we do it, and yeah. walks away. That, I think, is a huge problem with why why that uh, uh, system is so difficult to sort of self-correct, right? Because you have super young people being yeah. put in who are, I think, easily and understandably easily intimidated yeah. by the system that they've been thrown into. And I think it's a lot harder for a 21 year old than for somebody in their thirties who can look at it and be like, well, I just spent three years in law school being told that this is messed up and I shouldn't do it. So I'm not going to do it. I don't care who you are. You want to fire me, fire me. A 30 year old has a much easier time looking into someone's eyes and saying, then fire me than a 21 year old does. Right. So. And that incentivizes bad actors to bring in the naive, you know, none of this is to say that kids shouldn't be allowed to go to law school, but like, I, I do think that that is part of what's contributing. And I'm, I'm sure that if we put our heads together, we could start thinking of solutions. I just don't see anybody thinking, like identifying no. it as part of the problem and no, trying I, to. So, Like I can tell you that when I was uh, applying to clerkships and doing that stuff, there were times I'd be told, oh, we just didn't think that you'd be a good cultural fit. And what that was code for was that they thought that, A, I wouldn't, I, I would have my own thoughts. B, I would not put up with abuse or mistreatment. And see, they couldn't work me to death. That like <laughs> they were afraid that people in my age in their thirties would like actually have boundaries yeah. between their work and the rest of their lives, and they just didn't want that. Mm-hmm. They wanted people that they could exploit, which like okay, obviously not the job for me. But when you have a culture 
within the legal community. And this is something like my nonprofit did work, did work on um, that I co-founded. Um, there's an entire sectors of our legal system that are based off that kind of exploitation mm-hmm. of young, naive attorneys who then incidentally, if the ethics shit hits the fan, you are the person they are throwing under the bus. Yeah. Because ultimately, the reason they're kicking it downhill to you is it's your name yeah, signing yeah. off on it, not theirs. Um, and lawyers are unsurprisingly very good at covering their ass. Oh, you think? Are yeah, we? I know. <laughs> Do we think of everything? I wonder. I wonder if we, if we are paid to game out those things. Um, but... This is a question um, that. Oh, we... well, I didn't actually finish answering. Oh, sorry. Your question. Please I'm keep sorry. going. Keep no, no, going. no. We had a really enjoyable yeah. tangent. Yeah. I, I don't want to not answer. No, Somebody go, asked it. Go for it. So, so I did that mooting exercise. I did very well on it, and uh, to my to my surprise, as much as anybody else's. I, so I participated in a program called the Pro Bono Scholars Program in New York, which is awesome, and I, I hope every state starts mm-hmm. doing it. It's amazing. Uh, I finished law school. Quote finished. I didn't graduate early. Um, I finished all my coursework early. And so my last semester of law school, I took the bar exam, which I did not pass the first time. <laughs> Don't had, worry. Neither did Kamala Harris. I had pneumonia and I yeah. failed by three points. I was yeah. so mad. <laughs> and these are things that people worry about. It doesn't, you can take it again. It's yeah, not a yeah, big yeah, deal. Yeah, it was not a big deal. It's not a big deal. You can join a long list of very illustrious lawyers oh, who did not so pass the bar the first time. So people. Yeah. Um, but so, so I took the bar early. And because I was part of this program, it, it's they selected five students per year. In my case, it was all students who were interested in health law. They had kind of like tweaked the rules every year and they knew there were, yeah. So the five students who really wanted to do it were all health yeah. law, I think is what it came down to. So um, so we finished our coursework early. We take a bar prep class our, for our last semester of law school. So that would be the fall semester. And then the spring semester, you study for the bar for a month or two, take the bar in February, and then you get placed in a pro bono placement and you work for the rest of the year as a provisionally admitted attorney, which mm. is a new status in New York. And there were so many questions about like, yeah. can I file things? Can I sign things? And we, you know, it, I'm sure it's smoother now, but this is like the second year that they had the program that I was still in it. working so, out the case. Yeah. So I, I did that. I finished. And because I had already um, taken the bar again, I, I passed it, but when I took it again and passed yeah. by that point, I was, finishing up at a very good natural time for law firms to be looking Mm -hmm. and I started applying for jobs and I had a lot of fear because my sister graduated law school in 2008 which for those of you who remember the great (laughs) god the great recession oh god I mean like what happened to uh, to the incoming year of new lawyers that year was, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that before. There were just a lot of lawyers who thought they had jobs who it turns out they were, yeah. they were called up and told, I'm sorry, we don't have a, a place for you. Mm-hmm. And the legal market had been kind of, it, it, it had been in free fall for a while and it was just pulling itself up, but I still had a lot of fear that I would not be able to find a job. And so I immediately, like the, literally the morning I found out I passed the bar, I started sending resumes yeah. out left and right. And I've never heard of anybody having anything like this happen. The firm that hired me, like they saw my resume. They were like, all right, great. It looks like great for what we do. They called me up. I had an interview. On, that was a Friday. I had an interview on Monday. And they were like, normally we would call you back for an interview, like however long, but 
actually all the partners are here today, which is unusual. Oh, wow. So they walked me around. I was there for like three and a half hours Jeez. and they walked me around and introduced me to all the partners. It was a mid-sized firm, like yeah. on a smaller mid-sized uh, uh, scale. Yeah. So I met everybody. I liked everybody. They liked me. I got an offer the next day. I negotiated for a day or two, which mm-hmm. I th- it seemed like that was, they thought that was unusual. I think they hire a lot of people right out of law school yeah. and they're used to people not necessarily being like, oh, I think I'm worth a little more. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially for a first job. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I negotiated for a little bit, just a little bit. Um, and then I had a job. So I, and then I started like a week after that. That's amazing. Which is, Wow. That is an unusual time. That's so very you unusual. You are finishing law school. Do not use me as an yeah. example. That was highly unusual. But I do want to know that you, the aggression, the moment that you had, yeah. you, you, yeah, know, yeah. you just because sent it Because I out was afraid. I genuinely thought that I would start that aggressive yeah. that day and continue for several yeah. months. And that maybe if I was lucky by September or October, I would find a placement. That's yeah. That was what I thought. So I was as shocked as anyone. This happened to be a litigation firm. Yeah. And I had never seriously thought about doing litigation, but my thinking, again, I was afraid about the job prospects. No one else I had sent a resume to had called me. Yep. So I was like, well, maybe I should just consider myself lucky. So I did. Yeah. And it was insurance defense. It wasn't anything uh, crazy. However, if anyone is ever thinking about going into litigation and they just want to learn the nuts and bolts of how to be an attorney in a courtroom, yeah. that is in my opinion, the best way to do it because an insurance defense firm, basically you're like handling motor vehicle accidents and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you know, whatever insurance carrier you have, they hire you an attorney. If you get an accident, you get sued. And you spend, I think I was in court three or four days a week. Yeah, which is a lot. Which is a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and I had a huge caseload, but again, I was an older student used Mm -hmm. to being in a Mm -hmm. work, like I I think I, I was handling probably more than, an average number of cases. That's yeah. another advantage to coming into a, yeah. little, a little more seasoned. And I spent a, about a year, a little more than a year I spent there. Um, and I learned so much. That is probably the year of my career that I learned the most. Mm-hmm. I think for most people, the first year you practice oh, yeah. the most, but especially procedurally. Yeah. Um, I had some, you know, do you like story? The first day is kind of funny. The yes, first time I, I went do. to a courtroom. Yeah. So, the first day after I was sworn in, because you get it takes a while to get sworn in, and I pulled a short straw, and the board of law examiners, like you know, sometimes they just like randomly pick a file, and they're like, "We're gonna hover on you and make you submit extra documents." Ugh, it yeah. was annoying, but I eventually it so it took me like a month longer than most people, but I eventually got sworn in, and the very next day, my boss is like, "Great, we're gonna send you in on your own. You've been shadowing for a while. You know what you're doing. You're going to small claims." And all I had to do was get the case dismissed because our client and insurance, you can't name an insurance company as a defendant in a case. It's only the driver that they, right? Somebody went into small claims and tried to name this insurance company. So that was all I had to do was say, this is not a proper party. But I had never been to small claims. I'd never even been into that courthouse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a different courthouse. So they send me in. I, I walk up to the bar when they call my case and I had been shadowing for a while but they do things differently in every courthouse that you're in, right? Like some are more formal than others. And a lot of the parts that I had part is like the room that you're in, like what, what part means what room. Yeah. So a lot of the parts that I had been in were just a little less formal, I guess. So I walk up to, to the bar and the clerk says, okay, state your appearance. And I had never heard that phrase before. 
I just didn't know what state your yeah. parents made. Like, I, if they had just said, like, say who you are yeah, exactly. or who you represent or who yeah. are you, like, I would have gotten it. But they said they used this phrase mm-hmm. that sounded like a term of art that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so I just stood there and I was like, what? Yeah. And he was like, counselor, state your appearance. And I was like, your honor, I'm going to level with you. I was admitted yesterday and I don't know what that means. And yeah. I just said the truth because I there didn't know what else to say. But before I said that, yeah, I tried. I looked up, I opened my hands, and I said, ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> because he said, state your appearance. Yeah, I either said, ta-da or voila. Yeah. I forget, but I had my arms, I'm like, yeah. ta-da, here I am. And then they were like, counselor, what are you doing? And then I was like, your honor, I'm really sorry. I was literally yeah. admitted yesterday. I've never been in this court. I don't know what that yeah. means. And then and all he had to say was, oh, it means say your name. And I was like, exactly. oh, duh, yeah. okay. And everybody, <laughs> every single person who is in the law for a while, knows that feeling you know that feeling when you're when because the law loves its weird little terms of art it's it's, (laughs) it's little phrases it's latin phrases that people fucking butcher um everyone knows that time that you feel like an idiot but the thing is just ask yeah yeah yeah. because nine times out of ten the the judge or or whoever will be will just be like oh that just means this oh my god he was so nice yeah he was so nice he was like First off, he got nostalgic because he was like, yeah. I remember, remember my first time in yeah. court. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You're bringing me back. And then he just very kindly and gently. Meanwhile, a minute later, he says, OK, um, he says, uh, uh, does anyone ha- uh, want to make an application? And the clerk looks at me and heavily winking, like on yeah. purpose winking, goes, that means do you want to ask for anything? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I got that part. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do want to note here, like, this stuff sounds like the reason we're laughing about it now is that it's something that like every lawyer goes through. I mean, I, I yeah, yeah. It was, it's mortifying, obviously, it when it's happening. I'm sure I was completely red in the face. Like, But it's it's part of sort of the rite of passage. And also, as you said, the judge been there, yeah. bringing them back. And, then, and they're all trying, generally, they're trying to help. A good chamber, chambers, like, they're going to try to help you. I mean, listen, you, you can like the way a judge makes decisions. You can not like the way a judge makes decisions, et cetera, et cetera. But I can count on one hand the number of judges who I truly on a personal level didn't like. Yeah. I think the vast majority of judges get there because they love the law. Yeah. Right. And like you could disagree about what that means yep. and, and what it means to promote the law that they love or whatever. And yeah. whether they, you know, whether it fits within the discretion that you think they should have for yeah. them to do that. But I think most judges like at their core are nice enough people. Yeah. Right? Like I would like, I what do they used to say about, oh, George Bush, I could have a beer with him. Like yeah. I could have a beer with most of the judges I know and like enjoy it, I think. And why do you think I like judicial education? Like the judges get like are generally trying to do the best that they can. And being a judge is, can be extremely hard with heavy case loads, like, and now increasingly public scrutiny and a lot of pressure from the outside, uh, especially on stuff that the public doesn't necessarily understand what yeah. the judge's role is in. And I have to say, like, I remember when my, the first day of my second year of law school, I was called for jury duty. And I happened to be in the, uh, the case, it was a first degree murder. It was a capital case. Yeah, which is unusual. Yeah. And um, 
I knew the judge. I'd, I'd worked in the courthouse with him the summer before. He's like, Mr. Goodman, so good to see you. He's like, you're going to get struck for cause because I know you don't believe that the death penalty uh, is constitutional. I'm like that, that's true, yeah. Your Honor. And um, he, I'm like, he's like, when does law school start? I'm like, this afternoon. He's like, when? I'm like, well, my first class starts at two. Yeah. And he says, I'll make sure you're out of here by one so you're not late. And, I, and then, but he's like, um, but he's like, I could let you go now because I know you're going to get struck. I I think you're going to want to see it. Yeah. And he was right. I really was interested in seeing what voir dire, like jury selection was going to be yeah. like for this first degree murder case. And it was really interesting. And then uh, he started chuckling to himself when uh, the prosecutor started asking yeah. me questions. And the prosecutor asked me why I, I did not believe I could uh, apply the law in this case. And I started my explanation about why I thought the death penalty was unconstitutional. Just cut me off. <laughs> the, the prosecutor did not want me to speak beyond yeah. that. And he's just like, you can go. See you later. Have a good first day of your, t- of your second year. Yeah. Like, I did not agree with that judge on virtually anything substantive in the law. But he did take his job seriously. And he knew that I disagreed with him. But he also, he had an opportunity here to let me see something that I wouldn't normally see. Because how many people, very few people are ever involved yeah. in a capital case at all. And what's funny, that same year, I was doing a practicum on death penalty litigation. Yeah. So it was... Yeah, it's one of those practices where you really have to seek it out yep. and make it your thing, right? Exactly. Like you don't you don't come across it like, you There's know, so by accident. There's so few of them. Yeah. Or if you do, you're not... You're not qualified so you have to refer it to somebody anyway like if that if one of those cases came to me i couldn't be like sure that sounds like fun and do it technically could i yes but personally i think that would be ethically wrong because i don't know what i'm doing yes (laughs) like a lot of areas of law highly specialized there's no reason for anybody else to know it yeah like you don't need to know that case law if you're doing anything else other than death penalty litigation. There's no restriction that I'm aware of in any state that would say like, you can't just change practice areas and pick up a case that you, if you consider yourself a generalist on the other hand, I will say there is one type of person who maybe if you were a true generalist where you just hung a shingle and you took all cases from all. And, and one of the things that you really hung your hat on was your ability to dive in and learn I'm, how to do things. I still think capital cases would be extreme, I but think there capi- are yeah, generalists I agree. who that is a real talent of theirs is to say, you know what? I've never done a will, but I can learn everything I need to know and actually learn everything you need to know to do one. I agree with that. I think in capital cases, because of the weird way that state and federal law interacts and procedures work and the way the Supreme Court has sort of complicated it, um, you can make procedural errors that will impact eight steps later that you won't know that, and yeah. you won't see. And that, 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 that's the only thing. And I think that any generalist who came across a capital case would be well served yeah. to refer it to a specialist just for that reason. I think a little bit of humility is useful in that particular situation. Yeah. But like I, the larger point I want to make is that like, even if I, listeners have heard me criticize very specific judges recently. <laughs> have they? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. My goodness. Um, and the reason for this, <laughs> and the reason I come, I, I might come across particularly heated about this is oh. because of the level of commitment and integrity judges I work with uh, and speak to day in and day out show. So it really is an exception or an aberration 
I think, in the profession. And, and please, uh, if you disagree, let me know for ju- a judge in this particular case to act in the in these particular ways. No, I would I would agree. Yeah. 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 And actually that that kind of is a nice segue into so that you're I think what we're talking about is the idea of going from like broad to narrow, right? That mm-hmm. you that you eventually narrow in on what you want to do. So going from becoming a litigator, my next job, which I I always knew that I was going to want to do it, but I would have been to be honest, I liked that firm, the first firm that I worked on. They were nice people and yeah. Here's a really big thing. If you do go into law school later and you have kids at home, I by the time I, I got that job, I was a single mom by then. And I can commodify their flexibility mm-hmm. with me as a single parent. I The entire time that I worked there, I never once had somebody say something to me about the fact that I occasionally had to leave a little early mm-hmm. to get my son from school or wherever he was, mm-hmm. like maybe his daycare closed early, whatever, um, because they knew I would make the work up and it wasn't an issue. They didn't care yeah. if I had to finish up at home, whatever. Um, they worked around my schedule that way. They, uh, I, I thought I was paid fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just nice people who never made me feel different for having like a different, you know, I think they really did a lot of these firms that do insurance defense are used to having a much younger set of lawyers because they practice there a while and then they move on. Right. Exactly. It's like, it's a, often a first or second job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I never felt like I was never being treated like the Mr. Belding, yeah. the by the Bell cast, right? Like I wasn't like the old guy in the front, like yeah. they were just nice to me. So I, I, I really enjoyed working there and I probably would have been very happy there for many years waiting to make the leap to mm-hmm. cha-ching. Oh, that's the wrong word. Cause it's not necessarily about my, what's the word for like celebrating when you achieve something you've wanted for a really long time. I, I just, I just, you're, you, you're moving forward in your career. You're, yeah. You're, you're whoopee. Yeah. <laughs> whoopee is the better word. Yeah. I wanted to go to a dedicated healthcare firm. Yeah. And that is in some, like, I guess you could call it kind of a unicorn, right? Yeah. Like there are not many of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, usually you need, you need to have some demonstrable experience in something related to healthcare to get in. I, thankfully in my background, I had known I wanted to do this for a long time. So I had the pup, the MPH background, right? Like I was, I had been in an MPH program. I had taken every health law related cl- class that they offered at my law school, including medical malpractice, which I thought was fascinating, but I didn't necessarily, that's personal injury. Yeah. Most people think that it's health related. It's, it's not yeah. really. Nope. Um, I mean, you interact often it, with some medical records. It's health adjacent. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to be good at deciphering medical records to yeah. do it, which by then that was like a huge, that is to this day, like that's a huge strength of mine is that I can pick apart a medical record and understand most of what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. And I know how to learn what I don't know when I'm reading it. And so, there's something that they don't teach you in law school that is that you, that you find out and you apply. Right. Yeah. So, so I then met somebody quite by accident he had been a friend of mine already sort of for a year. We were like buddies. We went to the same yoga studio. Oh, nice. And cause that's like my, I don't do a gym. That's what I do. Yeah. Right? I, I just have a membership <laughs> there. And I didn't even know he was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And then one day I walk out into the lobby after class and he was like chatting with somebody else there. And I heard him mention it. And I was, and not only was he a lawyer, he was a help, a help lawyer. Wow. And yeah. I was, and apparently he owned his own firm. Yeah. And I was like, as a joke, really, I was like, well, where were you when I was looking for my first job? Because like, sign me up. Let me know if you have any openings. And he looks at me and he was like, 
just today, my partners and I decided that we need to hire somebody. Like we need a new associate. <laughs> and he was like, do you want to send me a resume and a writing sample? I don't think he had any expectation no. that I would be somebody that he wanted to no. hire. I think he, I don't know if he was being nice, if he was being polite, but like. Either way. Either way, he, he gave me the opportunity to send him something. Take it. So I went home and I went yeah. through everything I'd ever written in law school yeah. to, to find like the best one to send him. And I, and I sent it along. And again, it was, it was a little longer than the first time. It was a few weeks, but like I came in and I interviewed and there was a joke that like, you know, if this works out, this is the only place we're ever going to look for new associates over at the yoga studio. And then like, if it doesn't work out, we'll never hire anyone who likes yoga. (laughs) We are not, we are explicitly not giving advice of doing legal recruiting at yoga studios. Yeah. 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 This is is like a one-off. This is a huge coincidence. Um, especially because like I said, I had known this guy for like a year, yeah. but we'd never talked about what we did. Cause that's not, it wasn't I yoga go, talk. I don't yeah. go into the studio to be like, everybody, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody hiring? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so I ended up working there for several years. I worked there through yeah. the pandemic. And, um, so there are, there are a limited number of dedicated healthcare firms because there is only enough work that you need so many healthcare firms. Right. Mm-hmm. And ours was the, the one that I worked at was physician site only. And the reason for that is that once you have represented a hospital as outside counsel, you run into conflicts pretty easily mm-hmm. as soon as you start trying to continue representing physicians, because a lot of them are hospitalists now, meaning that they're employed by the hospital as opposed to having their own practice. So, mm-hmm. um, or maybe their practice was like, you know, is, has a licensing arrangement or like is hired by the hospital to work out of the hospital. So mm-hmm. either way, um, if that physician then comes into you and says, Oh, can you represent me in this thing? You have to be like, ah, I already represent your boss. Yeah. So, so that was, uh, I think the main reason why they, they just kind of had a rule that they didn't do that. And so I therefore had the opportunity to learn a whole lot about how you represent doctors and what they, what they need for licensing requirements and how they are, uh, disciplined at times yeah. if they need to be disciplined or, or if they're being disciplined, but it, it it's not fair, right? Yeah. Like they're like mm-hmm. everything, one of the things I like so much about health law is that I very rarely ever felt like there was a, a good guy and a bad guy, right? Like it was, yeah. <laughs> it, it seemed like in theory, everybody was trying to keep the system running smoothly yeah. and have everybody be functioning the way they're supposed to function in a system that is highly regulated because it needs to be highly regulated yeah. because it needs to be safe yeah. for consumers mm-hmm. and for patients. So, um, so it was interesting working on the physician side because many people will tell you that when you go work for a healthcare firm, you might want to stay like, I would have also been very happy staying there for a long time. Um, but some people often use it as a stepping stone to move in house. Mm-hmm. And typically that takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I want, I, I want to say that like the reason I was able to move there faster was just there, there was a lot of, uh, change up in the legal market after the pandemic, just yeah. like in a lot of sectors, a lot of people move jobs Yeah. and I was, I, I, I ended up benefiting from that, that yeah. a spot that I would not normally have anticipated being open to me for many, many years. Um, there, there was trouble finding somebody to fill it. And I at least had worked in a dedicated healthcare yeah. firm. So that was more experience than if I had just been working at some like generalist firm or doing something unrelated or whatever. Uh, and, and so I was given an opportunity yeah. to do it, which 
you know, honestly, like what I, what I do is not that different from what many lawyers do in many healthcare settings or in, in many health set, uh, law settings. But, you know, like you said, it's, <laughs> it, it's like a, it's, it's a milestone that you aim for. Yeah. Right. So I just got very lucky that I got yeah. there a little sooner, but so that's, that was my trajectory and how I got there, which I just took forever to explain. But, but. no, I think it's a really good <laughs> and informative story, especially for, you know, a lot of, um, you know, first generation students, uh, first generation lawyers, uh, lawyers of color from women um, often don't apply for jobs they think that they're not qualified for. And they're like, oh, this is for somebody later in their career. But what I appreciate about your story is you're like, look, I can do the work. Who cares if it's for techn- usually for someone else? Put your name out there, mm-hmm. right? Because you never know when these opportunities are going to shake out and, they, and you're, you're the name and you're the one who can do the work. Um, one of my friends says you should always uh, apply for jobs with the same confidence as a mediocre white dude, <laughs> right? Who seem to constantly apply for jobs they're not qualified well, for and then get jobs they're not qualified yeah. for. Like yeah. put your name out there. The worst thing they can have, you don't get the job. Okay, not the end of the world. Like, um, but when the chips fall the right way and you're in the right place, right time, you have the skills to do it. You, all you needed was the opportunity. I have. So like when they, when they ask you at job interviews, sometimes like if they are looking at your experience and, and relative to what they're looking for and they're sort of like probing mm-hmm. how you're going to do, I always make a point of saying like, listen, I, I understand that I might not have the experience that you are looking for yet. But what I can tell you is that I ask the right questions. Yeah. I am a person who's going to come in. I'm going to pay attention. I am very rarely going to have to ask something twice. Mm-hmm. And if I do, it's not because I wasn't paying attention. It's because it's particularly complex, yeah. right? Like, like I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to ask the right questions and I'm going to pick this up. And I think based on my experience that I will probably pick it up faster than, than average. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that straightforward answer mm-hmm. is very often enough for them because my, my sister is so good at, at helping people like with resumes and applying for jobs and all that. Like she's really good at that. And she, she always tells me something when it comes to like looking for jobs, which is that like what they just put in that ad is like, that is their unicorn. Yeah. That is their, like, if I could like create a person from the ether with my own hands yes. to fill this role, that's what it would be. She's like, but they know that they're not going to get mm-hmm. that. So go in and tell them how, but how you could be that. Exactly. And if you do that and you do it genuinely and you're not mm-hmm. trying to pretend that you're something that you're not, most people will respond to that. You also have to be personable. I feel like, I feel like the, it's more difficult for people who struggle with like social skills mm-hmm. um, or who maybe are like, I, I think probably my, my friends who are neuroatypical struggle a little bit more with this because um, job interviews are already stressful yeah. and it's a social interaction that we really only have a very, if you think, if you add up the minutes of your life that you spend in yes. job interviews, it is like a blink, yeah. right? Like you yeah. don't spend a lot of time doing that. So to focus so much on learning this skill is, is more difficult for some people than other, yeah. I think. But there are rules and you can learn them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's worth learning and it's worth having some good standby answers. It's also worth having some good standby questions to yeah. ask because they want you to ask questions and like, there are some questions they're going to ask you that it's good to have some like really good standby answers to like, um, mm-hmm. I don't even know what they are, but yeah, it's, it's a skill that like it Bill said, it's a skill it's that a can skill be learned learn. and it's yeah. worth learning. So uh, 100%. And uh, also people ask me like, 
you know, what are transferable skills? And I'm just like, a lot of things with job interviews are the same things that you learned for like first dates. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of overlap for skill sets um, uh, or talking to people at a party or any of these things. They all have this, they're these kind of stilted initial interactions of like getting to know people. There are rules, you can learn them, you can master them. Even, you know, um, people who are, you know, neuroatypical, again, can still learn it. Uh, uh, and I've seen a lot of people, one, a, a good friend of mine in law school, just a, who's a uh, neuroatypical just approached it. Like, this is a game. What are the rules? Oh, I need great. to learn the rules. Yeah. And then she's, then she was wanting to date and she's just like, I'm going to find a husband. What ports <laughs> over here? And now she's married very happily. And, it, and it, I think that approaching it in that way with that sort of like level of enthusiasm and lack of ego yeah. uh, is really helpful. And I, so we're going to do a follow-up episode where we talk a little more substantively about specific areas of uh, of healthcare law. But I think this, I really, thank you so much for coming in. This has been uh, amazing. I think really helpful for listeners who are trying to understand what the law looks like as a career. And then also like for a lot of our listeners who are trying to figure out if they want to go into the law, because obviously we talk about the law a lot, y'all are interested in it. Um, but like how to take that passion and turn it into a career, something substantial. So if there's like one last shred of wisdom or piece of advice they can give to someone who's either thinking about law school or in law school or early in their career, like what would that, that nugget of wisdom be? Um, choose what feels right for you and if you don't already know how you tick figure that out before you start the process and that might mean putting it off for a significant amount of time it might even mean you never come back to it but the people i know who are not happy practicing law or who don't have any passion for it it's just like what they do are almost always the people who I get the sense did not pick it for any particular reason. And knowing what it is you love about uh, uh, the way you approach a task, the way you learn, Mm -hmm. the way you study Mm -hmm. is kind of a big thing. Like knowing, knowing yourself and also knowing for instance, like, have you gone through a lot of jobs? Yeah. And if you have, why is that? What is the what is the thing about all those jobs that you didn't like? Mm-hmm. Because it might be that being a lawyer has that same thing. Yeah. Like you, like just going through all that work and then figuring out you don't like. It. I mean, again, that guy who figured it out first semester is my hero. Yeah. Because he looked at it and was like, "This is too much work to be yeah. worth it." Yeah. So like that is that is a big thing. And then if you if you do know how you tick, pick the school and the environment that is going to help you tick because there is something that came up when I was trying to decide what law school I wanted to go to, which is that wherever you go, there is a very decent chance that you will be stuck in that legal market, that you will not just be able to go somewhere else because if you learn whatever school you're in is going to teach you mostly the substantive law from, from that state. Right. I mean, there are, there are exceptions, but yes, generally that is the case. And it's very often the case that like all states are like a lean state or a non-lean state. Like there, like there's two main ways that states do this. And New York is one that does it this way. And Connecticut does it that Mm -hmm. way. I guess Connecticut and New York are very similar, but the point is like, 
wherever you go, you are largely going to be reading case law from that state and you're going to be working at internships in that city that you're in a school in Mm -hmm. and you're going to be so like if you go to i I don't know if you go to emory you're in atlanta you're probably not leaving atlanta when you're done the only real exceptions are like the top 20 law schools that the top 20 law schools generally send students not in their home markets uh with so like my law school 80 over 80 percent of the students practice outside of the jurisdiction where the law school semester long class on why you shouldn't go to a top 20 law school but okay yeah but i'm just saying like (laughs) like there was actually a question um that one of my students asked about missouri law that one of my classmates asked about missouri law and no one on the faculty knew the answer because no one in the faculty had ever practiced in missouri on that particular topic but this is really this is a really good point about the legal market generally they tend to be much more local and regional than people would expect. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so wherever you go, you want to like the area that you're in and you also want to be at a school that's going to foster and encourage your learning. So like I, I knew what I like, I had a very good idea of what kind of law I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly, but I had an idea. I knew that I was social justice oriented Mm -hmm. in, in what I wanted to do. Um, I, I had a family. So for me, that was a big consideration, obviously. Like I, I, although I will say that we considered moving, we, we, Mm. I looked, I applied to schools all over the country, but we looked closely at every city. And I also thought about going, I thought about going to Buffalo Mm -hmm. and I think I did end up applying. Um, and, and I, I got in, but I will tell you that the reason we decided not to go is that one day I went on the University of Buffalo, not the University, the City of Buffalo website. Yeah. And I'm looking at the website and I I noticed that a lot of the trees were like bending funny. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? And then I, my, my then husband looks at me and he was like, could it be because they're usually covered in snow yep. and they're like being bent down? <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I could live in a place that yeah. is so cold so much of the year that the trees grow wrong. Like, yeah. So there were different, mm-hmm. and and I had the same thing happen. And um, I thought about I I thought about applying to uh in, in Louisiana in Tulane. Tulane, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I I might even have uh, ended up applying. I can't remember, but it, it was more like mm, I, I don't know that I want to live in that, like, I don't know that I would like living in a tropical environment. I'm not used to, right? It's like tropical yeah. heat kind of. It's hot. It's hot. It's, it's humid. Hot. It's all year it's hot. A bu- it's a hot summer. swamp. <laughs> it's a hot and, swamp. And those were things that we took into yeah. consideration too, that if we get stuck here, are we going to love it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that was, so those were some, yeah. can, there was also, there's uh, the University of, I forget if it's North Dakota or South Dakota, um, school of law because mm-hmm. they kind of share a system, right? They yeah. share a judicial system and a legal education system. There's a there are a lot of reasons why there really should only be one Dakota. <laughs> their their judges seem to agree because yeah. they only have one set. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, and uh, there are many ways that the state agrees. Well, they had a program in place at the time. I don't know if it's still there. It's a gr- it was a great program, and we seriously considered it. Where if you go to law school there and you stay for five years in a rural community acting as like the local lawyer, as like a generalist for everybody uh, in town, after five years, they forgive all of your law school Mm -hmm. debt. And we seriously thought about it like that. And in the end, we were like, is it fair to bring a three-year-old to the middle of nowhere (laughs) in North Dakota? And we ultimately decided it was not fair. Yeah. I mean, all of these things matter. And I think this makes, you you make a really good point here because, uh, 
where you practice is going to strongly influence the context in which you're practicing law and the context in which you're practicing law often matters a lot more than what the actual letter of the law is Mm -hmm. because ultimately the law is what what the people there decide it to be regardless of what the actual words are and i have some stories about speaking of the capital i handle the capital case in the dakotas and let's just say i never want to interact with that legal system ever again but I think that's wonderful advice, and I hope that um, listeners got some really good, um, I guess, some like really good insight into the kind of considerations, issues, triumphs um, that can come for the early parts of your uh, of a legal career. And so, Jess, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'll do a follow up episode where she will answer uh, specific substantive questions that some of you have already submitted. If you want to submit more substantive questions um, or any questions, comments, concerns at all, you can find us on Twitter, at Perp Stew, Facebook, all that fun stuff. As always, go to uh, Sarah's uh, website, Metal Honey um, and uh, Metal Honey Foods, and go buy her stuff. It's amazing. I actually just got uh, a Metal Honey uh, uh, starter pack, which is not really a starter pack, a, a variety pack which had not only scorpion honey, but also vernal elixir, uh, which is a fun little uh, drink additive. That's great. Um, I'm actually going to be going on a date with someone who doesn't drink alcoholic uh, beverages. So I'm going to bring the vernal elixir along as a way to sort of uh, spice up the drinks. Um, So go to Metal Honey uh, Foods, do that. And um, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, This has been The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And until next time, Stay curious.